that. Well, let's turn in God's Word again to the book of Acts. We're in our second uh, part of our series that we've done, if you will. Uh, last spring and last fall, we focused in on Unfinished, the beginning, 12 chapters of the book of Acts, and now we pick up in Acts chapter 13 under the heading unstoppable, where we're going to see the gospel of Jesus Christ go forth, and through the work of missionaries and and different servants of the Lord, God is going to use them to allow the gospel to uh, take flight uh, to the known world. And we are learning valuable lessons through this. Last week we started this part of the journey as we looked at Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12, and we see that a church in Antioch, not very different than the church we live in today, is serious about God, they're worshiping and praying, and God speaks to them and sends them in a trajectory that they weren't planning, and we've seen God do that in our own uh, existence here at Village Bible Church, where God, uh, at a certain place and time, says, I want you to do this, and uh, and then we have the choice whether or not we want to be faithful to that. Well, they're faithful, and the task that they've been given is to set apart two of their best leaders, Paul and Barnabas, to go out and do a missionary uh, work uh, to a place that's unknown to them, but they're faithful and filled with faith, and they follow God, and they uh, are obedient to his calling, and they find themselves on the island of Cyprus, where God had uniquely sent them. And when they get there, they start preaching the gospel and doing the work, and uh, one of the most influential people of the entire island of Cyprus, the pro-council, we are told, Sergius Paulus, wants to hear more about the gospel. But this opportunity doesn't come without obstacles. There's a man named Elymas, Bar- Jesus, who is a false prophet and does everything in his power to try to keep the proconsul Sergius Paulus from believing. And Paul has to get really downright serious with this Elemis, this bar Jesus, strikes him blind for the work that he's trying to do. And uh, for a period of time, Elemis goes around blind as a bat and never comes to know Jesus. But we are told in verse 12 that because of the preaching and teaching of God's word, Sergius Paulus the influential man that he was comes to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And, and we are told then in verse 13 that they get up and leave. And where we're going to go now is Paul and Barnabas are going to head out on another leg of their journey. And I want you to recognize this morning that what you're going to hear and what you're going to see uh, is the same kind of storyline go on again and again. Just different places, different people. But they're going to enter into... Um, a new city, they're going to preach the same gospel, and they're going to see people that are receptive to the gospel, they're going to see people who reject the gospel, and you could say, here we go again. But I want you to know that while they're on the road again, per the words of Willie Nelson, what they're going to do is going to have impacts. And and I get this. In my other job as a caterer, um, I, I cook. The majority of my food is the same food. It's just served to different people and in different places. And I can start thinking, you know, what's the use? But as I get to know the people that I'm serving, I come to see the uniqueness of what they're trying to do, what they're trying to accomplish, what they're celebrating. And I want you to know Paul and Barnabas, are going to take the same gospel and they're going to go to different cities and do the same thing over and over again. And we might say, well, it's just a bunch of monotony. But I want you to see that as we go along the journey, there are things as we dig a little deeper, deeper than the surface, we're going to see that there are some invaluable lessons that we can learn as they hit the road again and again and again 
as we go from city to city throughout what is now modern-day Turkey. But to do so, I want to pick up God's Word and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 41. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab that pew Bible and the pew rack in front of you. I'm not going to be able to stop at every point in the in, in the passage. I'm going to read it, and it's telling a story, and then we're going to pull some lessons and truths out of it as we go. But let's jump into this right away. Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out. And for about 40 years, he put, them, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took place 450 years, and after he gave them judges until Samuel and the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up, that is, God raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Jesus. And though they found in Jesus no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Jesus executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took Jesus down from the tree and they laid Jesus in a tomb. But God raised Jesus from the dead. And for many days Jesus appeared to those who had come up with Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news of what God promised to the fathers. This has been, this Jesus has fulfilled to us. Uh, their children by raising Jesus. Also, it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And it's for the fact that he raised Jesus from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. 
For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by Jesus, everyone who believes is free from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astonished and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Let's pray. Father God, we come and we read the real-life situation, the real-life sermon of the Apostle Paul to a group of people that needed to hear it. Likewise, Lord, we hear the message from the Apostle Paul, and we are people who need to hear it. Lord, whether we have trusted you as our Savior, it's a reminder of your promises and your sovereignty and your goodness throughout all ages, a reminder that you are with us and will never leave us nor forsake us. It's a, it's a gentle and, and yet stern warning to us who scoff, for those who push away the claims of Christ that we should not fall prey to the, the same uh, futility of thinking that the chief priests and leaders in Jesus' day did when they uh, arrested him and, and put him on the cross. Lord, let us not be ones who scoff at the claims of Christ, but let us be ones who bow the knee to Jesus, the greatest of them all. And Lord, that by doing so, we might experience true in real life that is found in him. Now, Lord, I ask that you would speak through your servant this morning, that I would be uh, invisible so that you might be the one that is seen and all glory is given to you in heaven. We love you and give you the praise for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we come to verses 13 through 41, we've got a large passage of Scripture to get through. But I want us to know that as we look at it, it's just not another sermon. In fact, this is Paul's first sermon that's recorded in uh, the, the Scriptures. And it's a sermon that shows us where his heart is at. He loves the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he longs to share that with anyone who will listen. But to get the most out of what we're seeing, we've got to understand and be reminded of a couple things. Number one, we need to recognize this morning their situation. Their situation. As we pick up in Acts chapter 13, we need to know where they've been and where they're going. And so I want you to turn your attention to the map on the screen that will help us to understand a little bit of where they're at. So we see Jerusalem down at the bottom of the screen. Uh, Of course, that's where the church has started, where the day of Pentecost uh, takes place. That is the central hub uh, of uh, Luke's story in Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter chapter 12. But as we open up into Acts chapter 13, the church of Antioch over here on the right side of the map in modern day Syria because the, becomes the central hub of all the church's activity. This is where Paul and Barnabas are sent out. And so as they're sent out and their hands are laid upon them to go do this ministry, they embark to Seleucia, which is the port city of Syria, to head to Cyprus. And they're going to go to the island of Cyprus, which is in the Mediterranean. And they visit Salamis first. But 
but it's in Paphos where they meet uh, the proconsul Sergius Paulus and they meet and defeat, if you will, Elymas or Bar-Jesus. It is from here that our text picks up. They're going to leave Paphos and they're going to head northwest to the city of Perga, spend a little time in Perga, and then they're going to head and where the sermon takes place is in what is now modern-day Turkey, Pisidian Antioch. Now you're like, wait a minute, we've got two Antiochs here. How do you keep them separate? Well, number one, the reason why you've got multiple Antiochs, in fact, there were five in biblical times, was that these Antiochs were named after Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a ruler and a conqueror uh, of all of the known world. And, and the cities that he had built were named after him, kind of like how our founding fathers, many of them have cities named after them or states named after them. It's just a part of revering them as important people. Well, during this time, Antioch became a very uh, common name for a city. And so we've got to separate them. And that's why this one is called Pisidian Antioch because of the area of Pisidia where it's from. And that's where this sermon is going to take place. In Acts chapter 14, we're going to see them go to Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and then back to Iconium. And then they're going to, at the end of chapter 14, end up back in Antioch of Syria. So that's where they're going. These are real life places. In fact, I'm working through some pictures right now that Dave Haas, our director of missions, took. He's visited a lot of these places and has beautiful photos of, of some of the areas that you can visit and some of the architecture um, and uh, uh, different structures that you can see that were maybe even, in fact, a part of biblical times. Now, if you look at the map, you're like, okay, I get where they're going and this is real life and, and it's happening, but there's far more that's going on. So we're told when they're in Paphos, that great work takes place. As if, you know, our governor here in Illinois would come to know Jesus through our ministry. That is the equivalent of Sergius Paulus coming to know Christ under Paul and Barnabas' ministry. And in verse 12, we're told, he comes to the saving knowledge of the gospel and is astounded by the word of God. We as a church, if we had a part in, in reaching our governor with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we'd be pretty excited about that moment. That'd be pretty cool. And there'd be some great notoriety and there because some great exposure to the ministry that we're a part of. Now, you would imagine that because they're in Cyprus, which is a beautiful place, by the way, and because they've seen the, the leading man on the island come to know Jesus, they've seen one of the most prominent false teachers be struck blind and really defeated in his false ministry, you would have thought from a human standpoint that Paul and Barnabas would have uh, put their stakes down and said, we're going to land here, right? Because that's what we do. Success usually means we stop and we take it all in. Because that's a lot of times what we do. We find success and we hang there. But that's not what Paul and Barnabas do. As soon as they find success, they move on to the next city, which shows a lot of faith uh, on their part. Because they didn't know what was going to be up in Antioch. They didn't know what they were going to experience. They didn't know what kind of reception they were going to get. And they could have been comfortable in staying where success was found but God had other plans. I want you to know this morning that sometimes God doesn't want you to linger on your successes. He wants you to go out by faith 
And to head out into a new opportunity, unknown to you in that opportunity, is whether people will be receptive, or you'll find success, or you'll be unsuccessful. This is what Paul and Barnabas do. They embark out on this journey, not knowing what is going to come. Now, there's a couple things that I want to show you with regards to their situation. The first thing that I want you to see is the temporal nature of ministry. The temporal nature of ministry. Now, what we see is Paul and Barnabas set sail. And we are told in the text, in verse uh, 13 of chapter 13, now Paul and Barnabas, I'm sorry, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. Now let's stop there. Now you would say right away, that all we're getting is just some mindless commentary of what's going on. But I want you to know that what Luke has articulated is a mouthful. And there's a valuable lesson for us to learn. In fact, there's three valuable lessons in those two short verses that seemingly are geographic only in, in telling us where they've gone. The first thing is, is that there is great, there's great temporalness to the ministry we're a part of. Paul and Barnabas could have stayed, but they don't. And they head to a different place to minister to a different group of people. I I want you to know that when you embark in ministry, ministry will stay the same, but the people and the places that you serve will be very, very different. I recently read that the average tenure of a pastor in America is about 22 to 26 months of time, okay? So about two years. And so if you're called to ministry as a pastor, there's a good chance that you're going to go through a dozen different churches in your process. And there's good to that, there's bad to that, of course, but there's a lot of transition. Now, as a pastor here... We've not experienced that. I've been here now and I'm celebrating uh, my 15th year of ministry uh, here at Village Bible Church. And so I have, uh, in many ways, by God's grace, uh, bucked the system, if you will, and by your patience, have been given the opportunity to continue to preach and, and lead this congregation. But that wasn't the case before I came. The longest tenure of a pastor in the first 35 years of Village's history was about five years the, long, the average tenure was about three and a half of our pastors prior. And so you would say, well, Tim, there's not much temporalness in your ministry. In fact, a couple of months ago, I was preaching a message, and I got finished up, and at the end, people said, we thought you were resigning at the end of the message. And I said, did you get some information I wasn't aware of? They said, no, it just sounded like you were going to resign. And I have no intention, I know that disappoints some of you, I have no intention of resigning anytime soon, that God, I really believe, has some of our best years of ministry ahead of us. And yet, even though I've been here for the amount of time I have, I can't tell you that how true this is. There's a temporalness to ministry. And here's why. The people. Even though we didn't move locations, the people have changed. We shared uh, recently at a family forum and, and showed some of the breakdown of it. Uh, our church has, has lost lots of people in these la- in really these last eight to ten months. And we did some research and, and we knew we were having a lot of people move, uh, especially out of the state. So when you hear about the migration of people out of the state of Illinois, it is really true and it's hit the sugar Grove campus really hard. We are nearing 10% of our church family that has moved out of state in the last six to eight months. It's amazing. 
you know, I'm starting to wonder, will there anybody be, be left here? But I assume we've got to have schools and, and things here in Illinois. We'll still have a church. But people move. And that's hard, right? It's hard when that happens. We say goodbye to people and, and ministry changes. But here's the thing. The church has, has held its attendance rates and its size because we've had a whole bunch of new people come on. And today we've got new people who are a part of it. And, and so ministry needs to continue on. We can't mourn over the loss of, of people as great and as awesome as they were. But ministry keeps going on to a new group of people. And here's the thing. Most of you, in the 15 years that I've been here, came along in the journey. Very few of you were here at the beginning of this chapter of Village's history. And so ministry is always working with new people. Here's the thing we've got to recognize, and it hurts us at times, we struggle with it. The church is never static. The church is never the same. The church is a family. It's growing and people are coming and going. We've buried a couple people in the last couple days, right? And so uh, they even leave via going to glory, which is a great move and transition, right? It's way better than moving from Illinois to Texas, which I hear is wonderful this time of year. But heaven, man, what a, what a move on up, right? You hear the song of the Jeffersons kick up when you hear, when you hear glory calling. But this is what happens. People move and they transition. And Paul and Barnabas are feeling this. Right when they're feeling like they've got it, right when they feel like they're in a comfortable mode, the people and, and the places that they're serving is different. But I want to go even a step farther. In ministry, when especially you do it for a long period of time, the partners, not just the people and the places that will change, but your partners in ministry will. Paul and Barnabas, let's fast forward to the rest of the book of Acts. Paul's going to go on three missionary journeys. On this missionary journey, he's with Barnabas. On the next missionary journey, he's with Silas. On the final missionary journey, he's with Timothy. And in that, we need to recognize that when we serve the Lord, we don't need to think, well, I'll serve the Lord if I've only got this person. And as long as we're a team, then we're good to go. I get that I don't want to lose any of my team, but I need to recognize that the gospel continues to move forward if I don't have that fellow leader in that Sunday school class, if I don't have that uh, co-leader in my small group, if I don't have that person on my missions team, that ministry moves ahead. There's a temporal nature to ministry. But I want you to know with all of this change, moving from place to place, involving different people, there's also trouble with teams. There's trouble with teams. We are told in the text that as they're leaving, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Turn the map back on just to help us out here for a moment to understand exactly what happens. They're heading to, on the ship to Perga and uh, John Mark heads to Jerusalem. Can you just agree with me with an amen that those are two very different directions? Right? Talk about the opposite. They're going in an exact opposite way. John Mark heads back to Jerusalem while they're heading to Perga. What in the world happened? Well, we don't know. We don't know why John Mark left. John Mark was a part of the team. In fact, he was the youngest of the team members. John Mark was a young man who was a follower of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. John Mark, uh, many believe that John Mark's home and the upper room of John Mark's home was where uh, the Lord's Supper and the Last Supper of our Lord took place. John Mark is one of the is the individual who writes um, the first of the Gospels, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, John Mark is a credible, solid 
guy, but as a young man, something happens that sends him back home. He was going to go on this journey and see the journey throughout, but something happens. Let's, let's speculate for a moment. What could have been? Number one, John Mark might have given up on the trip because of the arduous journey that had already had taken place. It, it had been difficult already. And this idea of going from town to town, place to place, maybe he got homesick. Maybe, maybe he didn't like what, what he was seeing. Maybe the whole encounter with Elemis, Bar-Jesus, and Paul scared the daylights out of him. I mean, think about it. You're hanging with one of your pastors and your pastor gets in an argument with a guy that doesn't like Jesus and your pastor strikes that guy blind. You may not want to hang around your pastor, okay? Because maybe he might get mad at you and strike you blind, right? I, I gave Keith that power in the first service and now nobody wants to hang around with Keith anymore, right? But, but we're not sure. The second thing that it could have been, we are told in the text, it is now Paul and his companions. Every time before it, it was always Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul. Now, Barnabas' name isn't even mentioned. It's Paul and his team, or Paul and his companions, or Paul and his associates. This could have been an issue for John Mark. Why? Barnabas was John Mark's cousin. And John Mark had a special place, I'm sorry, Barnabas had a special place in his heart for John Mark. And in fact, Barnabas would defend John Mark later when Paul has no desire for John Mark to continue on a journey later on uh, for ministry's sake. And so maybe John Mark doesn't like Paul. And, and I just want to encourage you, one of the reasons why could be because Paul had a very dominant personality. And maybe he feels like Paul is getting too much of the spotlight. Maybe he thinks Paul's making too much of the decisions. Maybe it's all manner of things. He just doesn't like how Paul works. And I want to encourage you this morning that when you're in church, there are going to be people that you don't like. All right? And here's the reason why I know that. Because if the church was a place that we just liked everybody and, and got along so well, the Apostle Paul would have spent so much time saying, be compassionate to one another, forgive one another, care for one another, love one another. He wouldn't tell them to not allow malice, slander, and gossip to rule the day. Why does he say all of that? Because he recognized in the church of Antioch, and he recognizes the church of Village Bible, that we we are going to be filled in this place with brothers and sisters in Christ, but quite frankly at times because of personality, because of, of issues that come up, we're going to struggle to like one another. And I am so encouraged, number one, that Luke brings this up. Number two, I'm encouraged that um, this doesn't say we're bad Christians because Paul and Barnabas, they couldn't have been better Christians. They were phenomenal guys and John Mark as well. They were great men of the faith and they still had personality conflicts along the way. And we need to recognize, especially a church that makes teams such a core value of who we are, that conflict will no doubt arise along the way. We're going to have trouble with teams. One final thing that many believe that the reason why John Mark left, and it's a great reminder for us, is that he just quit. Things got boring for him. 
He didn't get the joy that he once did about serving God and, and doing things. And what a great reminder for us that we never truly retire from ministry. We, we never get to just say, you know what, I'm done. I don't, I've done my time. I, I don't want to do it anymore. Whatever reason, and we'll learn about this later because it will create such a division between Paul and Barnabas later in the book of Acts. John Mark takes off and he goes in the exact opposite direction. He's heading back home. And with that, we see that there can be trouble when we try to do ministry together. But I want you to notice one final element, and that is that we learn that tenacity is required. So they're going to head to uh, Perga again, and it's going to involve some grit. It's going to involve some tenacity because they're going to have to come face-to-face with an obstacle unlike any obstacle they've come up against before. You see, as they, uh, again, let's throw the map up there just to help you. Uh, as they come to Perga, in between that arrow between Perga and Pisidian Antioch is a problem. You see, Perga is a nice place. So we've got some pictures of Perga we'll be showing in the days to come. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful port city. But as you look uh, towards the north of Perga, this is what you see. Go ahead and throw the next slide up. That's the Taurus Mountains. The Taurus Mountains are the dividing line between Perga and Antioch Pisidian. And what you've got to do is you can't go around these mountains, you've got to go through the mountains. Now, there is a part that you may wonder if John Mark saw that and was like, I'm out. I'm not doing it. How many would struggle with that, right? You know, some of you are like, that's awesome, let's do it, right? I'm all for that. That's my kind of missions trip, you know, your little alpine are you, okay? But... This is a a struggle. You're saying, I'm willing to stay down here and do this. So it lets you know, and I misspoke in the first service and was corrected, and I'm glad I was. Um, The Taurus Mountains, I said, were about 4,500 feet above sea level. I was wrong. It's 4,500 meters above sea level. That peak there is almost 14,000 feet high. Okay, so, and again, I want to not be mistaken, but I believe there's only one mountain here on the on uh, the continent of America that's higher than that, and that would be Mount McKinley. If I if I'm right on that, you can correct me after the service if I'm wrong. This is a pretty tall mountain range. And in it, we are told by historians that it's not only filled with great treachery because of how they've got to do it. Now listen, there's no plane, there's no highway. They're going to climb this thing, and they're going to do so without knowing what's on the other side. Listen, if we had gotten a letter from someone that said, we are living on the other side of the mountain, come tell us about Jesus, we want to hear about him, I might consider climbing that mountain. They had no idea if the people on the other side of the mountain would even want to hear them. And what we have is, and again, if we don't dig a little deeper into scripture and do a little study for ourselves, we would never see the grit and tenacity that Paul and Barnabas had, that they said, listen, we're going to climb this mountain without having any guarantee that when we get to the other side, that it will have been worth the climb. But they did it. This begs the question, just really quickly, guys, it begs the question, what are we willing to do? What mountain, whether physical or symbolic, in our lives are we willing to cross for that person who is an unbeliever and is not a part of the family of God? I mean, we, there's a part of us that's got a little too much John Mark in us, right? 
that we tap out way too early. And we're going to see their grit and tenacity is going to lead them to see the gospel get shared to a whole group of people who would have never heard it. So, we just set sail. Now we're in Perga. And we make our way to Antioch, Pisidia. And as soon as we get there, what does Paul do? Well, Paul does what Paul and Barnabas will do again and again and again. They get into a city. They go and seek out the Jews and God-fearing people. Well, where are you going to find them? Well, you're going to look for a synagogue. And there was a synagogue in Antioch. There isn't always a synagogue where they go, but here there's a group of Jews. Now, why would there be Jews so far away from Jerusalem? Remember, a great persecution has broken out, number one. Number two, we also need to recognize that because of the movement of the Roman Empire, travel and moving has become a big deal. Commerce has begun to drive where you live and and what you do. So religion no longer does that. Nationality no longer does that. They are now a people that are moving about. So there's these Jews, and Paul and Barnabas says, where will we find the Jews? We'll go on the Sabbath to the synagogue. There's going to be a whole group of them there. Now when they get there, we're told by Luke that when they get there, the chief priests and leaders of the synagogue say, hey, you're from Antioch in Syria. Tell us some encouraging things. Give us a report. And you're like, well, why would they do that? Why would someone hand over, if you will, their pulpit to people they had not seen before? Well, back in the day, and this was true even a 100 years ago here, that when a church had a visitor, there was a good chance that that visitor had come from a far place. And what better way to get to know them and hear what's going on in the outside world, especially when telecommunications was not even invented, to hear what's going on. And so they say, tell us what's happening in Antioch of Syria. Tell us what's happening with the synagogue. Tell us what's happening with the Jewish people. Maybe there were relatives that they could share and and talk about what's going on. And so they're given this opportunity. Some guests are here today, and they're wondering if I'm going to do the same thing, right? Stand up and tell us who you are and where you're from. We don't do that today uh, as much as we used to back a 100 or so years ago, and of course in the days of, of the Bible. But what does Paul do? Paul could have gotten up. And he could have talked about himself. Paul could have gotten up and talked about him and Barnabas. Paul could have gotten up and talked about where they've been before. But Paul doesn't. And what Paul does instead of sharing Paul's story, he shares his story or God's story. And that's a reminder for us as well. A reminder that uh, when we talk with people, we need to recognize that within every opportunity of us opening our mouths is an opportunity for us to take the spotlight off of us and our activities and to point it on God. Paul could have, listened. this is very important, Paul could have just talked about the comings and goings of his life, but he doesn't. He talks about the Lord and the work of the Lord and the plans of the Lord. And we need to recognize how often, all throughout the day, listen, all we do, and I do it as well, we've only talked about ourselves. We've never talked about the Lord, the Lord who's given us life, the Lord who's given us breath. One day I was on a catering job and uh, I was cooking and sometimes my pastor vocabulary comes out in the catering event. Someone came up and said, that was the best pork chop and chicken I've ever had. And, and I said, praise the Lord. And the guy looked at me and was like, praise the Lord? 
I'm giving you a compliment and you're bringing up the Lord. But the guy starts working through it. God bless the guy. He starts saying, you know what? You're right. He said, God made the world. And I'm following him going, where is this going? God made the world. And you're in the world and you cook the pork chop. And, and pigs and chickens, they're in the world. And God created them. And then God created the grill and the charcoal that you... Yeah, praise the Lord. And then I had an opportunity. I'm like, I can't leave it. This guy's just set me up. And I sat with the guy and told him why I think the Lord deserves praise. Whether we eat or drink, we do all things to the glory of God. And, and we're working through that. And I'm like, why don't I do that more often? Why don't I, why don't I segue into the things of the Lord? And why do I compartmentalize? Well, now is not the time to evangelize. Well, this was just tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us an encouragement. And Paul shares God's story, not his own. Notice a couple things about God's story. It should serve as an encouragement. It should serve as an encouragement. It is asked of Paul, do you have a word of encouragement for us in the text? Share a word of encouragement. Paul doesn't get up and say, you know what, really I don't, because without Jesus you're going to hell. Hmm, bad news for you, good news for me, ha ha ha. He doesn't do that. And I want you to recognize that there is inherent within the gospel an encouragement. That's why it's called good news. It's an encouragement. It should serve as a way to bring hope and bring joy to the hearer. Now, does, will it always do that? No, but inherent within it is, is it's a positive message. Let's rewind back, and, and Luke, the same author, tells us when the angels appear to the shepherds, when Jesus is born, and going back to Christmas now, we bring you good news of great joy. And they're sharing the good news, the euangelion, as it is said in Greek, the good news, the gospel of Jesus. Now, how is the gospel good news to people? How can it serve as an encouragement even before notice that what he's going to share, there's nothing about Jesus for the first half of the message. And what he's going to share is he's going to share their common heritage and nationality as Israelite people. I want you to know that in your evangelism, in your apologetic, is what we call it, you sharing the gospel, there is a commonality that you need to find in the person that you are witnessing to. And so maybe it's this person that's sitting next to you in the office, maybe it's a student sitting next to you in this third hour class, maybe it's your neighbor... And Paul makes this common ground. You and I both know the history of Israel. And we've seen the goodness of God. They're God-fearing people. We've seen the goodness of God in our lives and in our history. We can agree on that. There is an encouragement when Christians find a common ground with their unbelieving friends or acquaintances. Where we take some time and we get to know the person and recognize that the person struggles with some of the same things we struggle with. The frailties of life, the unknowns of tomorrow, when tragedy comes, the sadness that comes upon us. We can encourage people in that way. We can encourage them on how God has sustained us, how God has, has helped us. We can encourage them on how other Christians have come alongside us and served us. And, and we can be an encouragement to them 
by being the Lord's hands and feet. That's what Paul is doing. He's encouraging them in a commonality. We all know the history of Israel. We all have been changed by the history of Israel. We can do that. Listen, we can do that with a person who is ignorant of the teachings of Christ. We can come alongside of them and recognize that we, like them, experience very similar things. But what Paul does is he takes the commonality and he begins to interweave and he begins to, as you want to write in your outlines, explain explain how their commonalities find hope in God. So what Paul does is he says, listen, we've all been waiting for this Messiah. We've all been waiting for someone to come and save us. We have that in common. And what that means is we need to be saved. And so the commonality that we have is, is one of the first things that you should do as you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone is find a common ground that you and them are frail. That both you and them are broken. That you and them are sinful. Don't say you're a sinner. Don't say you have a problem. Say we have a problem because hint, hint, you were in the same boat not too long ago yourself. And so you and I, we have a commonality. We're lost. We're frail. We're broken. We're dysfunctional people. And what you need to be honest and open about, what I need to be honest and open about is our frailties, our struggles, our despair, our depression, our uh, sin. And say, listen, th these are the things that I went through. You know, we are told that we are judgmental, quite frankly, because we are. We point the finger at people and tell them they need Jesus, and we forget to tell the people that we need Jesus as well. And so here, Paul, he doesn't beat them down. He gives them a word of encouragement. We're broken. We're lost. We're waiting for this Savior. We have this need, this hole in our heart. And God is going to take care of it. Well, how does he do it? And he begins history, historical event upon historical event. Here is how God brought forth Jesus. Now I want you to know that in this entirety of this sermon up to this point, Paul has them. He's preaching to the choir. You talk about Abraham, amen. You talk about David, amen. You talk about Egypt and how we uh, found victory in Egypt through Moses, amen. And Paul's got to be sitting there thinking, at some point I've got to bridge the gap between our frailties and our struggles and how I can be an encouragement and that my explanation has to bring me to a place where I exalt Jesus. I have to exalt Jesus. And notice in the text what he says. In verse 23, of this man's offspring, whose? David's. They have no problem. Listen, the Messiah was going to come from David, and they knew that, and they're okay with that. He has brought to Israel a Savior. They're still okay with that. We have a need. We're sheep without a shepherd. We're broken. We all like sheep have gone astray, each going our own way. They believe the words of Isaiah. They're locked in. But, but Paul has to utter a word, a name, that he knows is going to bring down the house in a bad way. Jesus. Have you ever noticed that in our culture today, nobody has a problem with God? Keep God generic. Keep God as a God who can be reached by any manner of ways. We're okay with God. Our, our Hollywood thanks God all the time. Nobody has an issue with God. 
But when you bring up the name Jesus, the world throws up its arms and says, you're out of bounds. Some of us, listen, some of us in our evangelism think we're doing evangelism well because we are a bright shining light, which we should be, to our neighbor and friend. We're an encourager. We've somehow explained a little bit how our religion or how our spirituality affects our life and makes us the kind of person we are. And again, that's important. But we have never stopped and never declared to the person we're evangelizing to that apart from the work of Jesus on the cross, I would be lost. And I want you to know, just as I was lost, so you are lost and in need of a Savior. Listen, until you do that, evangelism is incomplete. Because as Dave Welch said at the beginning of our service, there is no name under heaven by which man can be saved. Your name won't work. Moses won't work. David won't work. The hall of faith that we just got through preaching about, every one of those names don't work. The only name that works in the first century and in the 21st century now and forevermore is the name Jesus Christ. The name where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess one day. And so we've got to preach that, and we've got to exalt him. And I want you to know, when you do that, the world's going to come against you. When you do that, elements of this world are going to fight against you. But also, the bar, the um, pro-council like Sergius Paulus, it is that name, and it is that gospel that allows them to be saved. He preaches the gospel. And he proclaims it, that it is only through Jesus. Yes, is an encouragement. Yes, it needs to be explained. So we need to know the story. But it needs to exalt Jesus. The stone that the builder rejected. Because Paul says, listen, all of human history hinges on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we've got to, com- we've got to be compelled and be bold to tell people that. And to proclaim that, and as we sang, to crown him king of all. Well, that leads to what Paul says is our solution. It's Jesus. He's our solution. The message of Israel's history is a synopsis of human history. Rebellion against God, futility of man. And since the beginning of time, instead of choosing God and going his way, man has chosen to go their own way. And as a result of that, Man has found themselves in a whole lot of problems. And so what is the thesis of all of these verses of Paul's message? It is simply this. Paul's thesis of this entire sermon is that restless hearts find rest in the Redeemer. And so the people that are looking and seeking to find God, they fear God, they want to know God, they may not know who He is, or what he's all about, they know they're restless, and they want rest. And Paul says, restless hearts find rest in Jesus, the Redeemer. And so, what do we need to know about this? Number one, God extends, he extends this offer of rest to all. Notice verse 38. In verse 38 we see, and we are told... Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone, if you underline in your Bible, underline everyone who believes, is freed from 
everything, those are big statements, everyone and everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So what Paul is saying is God in his love, God in his mercy, after putting up with us, those are the words he uses, putting up with us as sinful men and women, he has given us the most inexpressible and indescribable gift of Jesus Christ, who came, put on flesh, made his dwelling among us, lived a perfect life, died for us in our place, so that we might, through his mercy and grace, come to understand the fullness of what it means to live in relationship with God. Who is that offered to? Everyone. Every man, every woman, all the rich, all the poor, the old, the young, the saint in their own eyes, or the sinner. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. The blood of Jesus covers all of that. And you can find rest in that. You don't have to pick yourself up. You don't have to clean yourself up. You come to Jesus as you are. And it is that Jesus who extends his love and his mercy to you. And he is the one that forgives you of all unrighteousness. Praise be to the name of Jesus Christ. Okay? It's extended to all. It's going to impact everyday life. These men and women have been in bondage trying to figure out how to live life apart from God through Jesus Christ. And they've tried to make it right through the law of Moses. Listen, men and women do that today. They don't know they're trying to do that. But men and women say that the most common answer to how do you know if you're going to get to heaven or not is based on how much good you do. So men and women are in bondage trying to do more and more good. And little do they know that their most righteous deeds are but filthy rags. They need Jesus. They need a Savior. Here's the most liberating thing in the world. The most liberating fact of all of human existence is the following. There is a God and I'm not him. And there is a redeemer and it ain't me. I cannot redeem myself. I cannot redeem my family. I cannot redeem my friends. But there's one who can redeem me. And if I will put my faith and my trust and, and my reliance on him, and now I can live in freedom, not bondage. And there are some in Paul's audience and there are some in this audience today who are living in bondage, trying to figure this life out on their own. And Jesus is there offering and he's saying, come to me all who are weary, come to all who are looking for rest and you will find rest for your souls. But notice this offer has eternal consequences. This isn't just a one-time thing, a one-moment thing, but notice there's a warning that comes. Beware, verse 40, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come true. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. Listen, if you turn away from Jesus, it may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but the patience of God has its limits. And the Bible says that uh, it is appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. And so you can play that game and say, you know what, I'm not going to die for a while, but the Bible says no man or no woman knows the hour of their demise. No man or woman knows what a day might bring. And so there may be a moment where the breath is taken out of you. There may be a moment where your life is going to be snuffed out. It may be sooner than you think. And in that moment, if you find yourself in a place of scoffing, then there's only a place called hell that is in place for you. Because God's patience and his mercy have limits. 
They have limits in the fact that there's a time and a place where God will cease to be a savior and will take on the role and responsibility of judge. And those who scoff will not expect and should not expect the glories of God and should not be astounded in good ways, but astounded in very, very bad ways. And there are some here today that you scoff, and I want you to know that your scoffing will one day come to an end, and you will bow the knee to Jesus, but it will be on God's terms, not yours. But notice what Jesus is saying. I'm doing a work in your day, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. I want you to know God's writing this story, and this story involves you sharing the gospel and proclaiming the gospel to your lost friends and neighbors. It may begin, listen, it may begin with an invite to the barn bash. It may begin with an invite uh, to a small group gathering, but it's got to continue to cultivate. It's got to continue to grow to the point where you can look them face to face, eye to eye, and say, apart from Jesus, you and I can do nothing. Bow the knee to Jesus and find eternal rest in him. Paul and Barnabas were on the road again. And we find ourselves each and every week on the road again, different places, different settings, different environments. But the thing that remains true is that we have a God who will not change. And we have a gospel message that needs to be proclaimed. That same, same old story needs to be proclaimed again and again and again until every ear has heard the glory of the exalted one, Jesus Christ.